pediatricians are just asking, are they sitting? Are they crawling? But there are so many nuances in the brain maps of development that impact language and other components based on how they get to those points. We focus a lot on what kids need to do, what mothers need to do, but not the why and how do we get there and the little nuances of things that help our children get to where they are that are so important. It really begins at birth. It begins before birth. If we want to really get into those brain maps and how to really help our kiddos, even before they know that they need help, it's really starting now. Many kids get lost in the system until there is an issue. And if we can get everyone to know why it's so important and how to do it, wow, we can impact all babies actually, (laughs) not just the ones that need services. Giving birth is one of the most significant events of your life. Sadly, the joy that you should feel can often be replaced with anxiety and helplessness instead. As a labor and delivery nurse, I'm revealing insider information to educate you, reassure you, and decrease your fear. In this podcast, you'll hear empowering birth stories and experts weigh in on a range of topics. Being Jewish also has me exploring Judaism's influence on the reproductive experience. However, I speak to anyone wishing to navigate their journey with more joy and confidence. I'm your host, Hani Fingerer, and you're listening to the Happy Birthway Podcast. Welcome to episode 72 of the Happy Birthway Podcast. For this episode, I'm really excited to bring you a value-packed episode full of information and probably many ideas that you have never heard about before. So whether you are somebody who's pregnant with your first child or you have a baby within the first one, two, three years of life, or maybe even more, you are going to gain a lot from this podcast. Last week, it was so great seeing some of you at the Orthodox Jewish Nurses Association annual conference. I had a funny encounter with someone when I came in. I was talking to a friend and someone interjected, are you Hani Finger of the Happy Birthday podcast? I said, yes. She's like, oh, I recognized you by your voice. So that was funny. Never thought that I had such a distinguishable, if that's a word, voice, but apparently to some people I do. I want to also thank those of you who left a comment or a question on my episode in the Spotify app, and I encourage you to continue to do that. At the OJNA conference, someone came over to me, a woman that probably was around in her 50s, and She told me just how much she enjoyed the podcast, but she also mentioned and asked, can I address general woman's health issues aside from pregnancy and birth, etc.? So I'm just curious to know who else would be interested in something like that. And so for that, I am going to put down a poll in this week's episode on the Spotify app. So vote on that poll whether you would like other topics on women's health aside from the typical pregnancy, childbirth, postpartum stuff that we talk about. And if you do vote yes, then please tell me in the comments in the Q&A 
what other topics you would like. And again, just to remind you, these are anonymous responses, so other people will not see them unless I choose to publish them, which I will not uh, for any sensitive topics, obviously. But if you say, hey, I love your podcast, that I will publish if that's okay with you. And without further ado, enjoy this wonderful, amazing episode. Welcome to the Happy Birthway Podcast, Freddie and Rizy of Hands On Approaches. Can you please introduce yourselves? Hi, my name is Friday. It's great to be here. We're so happy to be part of this podcast. My sister Raisi is here as well. And we are neurodevelopmental occupational therapists that specialize in anxiety and processing delays. And we are thrilled to share with you some information, a little bit about our stories, about some of our client stories. And thank you for having us. Hi, everyone. This is Raisi. I think you did a great job introducing us and letting us know. And we're excited to be here. I find like the more we talk about development and just you know, births, it's just, there's so much information that could be helpful to parents. A little background information. We actually have a practice called Hands-On OT Rehab, where we provide services. We also have Hands-On Approaches, which is how you guys know us out in the social media world, where we provide education for professional and therapists and educators. And also we're founders of the Hope Foundation, which is a nonprofit with a mission to prevent anxiety and mental health challenges. And one of the reasons we're thrilled to connect with Hani and the community is that it really begins at birth. It begins before birth. If we want to really get into those brain maps and how to really help our kiddos, even before they know that they need help, it's really starting now. So we're thrilled to be here. We have a lot of the conventional medicine that we talk about when it comes to birth, the conventional care. And I think that we leave these important points out too much. And, you know, PT with pelvic floor therapy used to be something that was completely unknown. And now more and more it's emerging. But I think there's such a important place for OTs as well. Well, thank you for that. And I will share with you that just to get a little background about how we started and why we're so motivated to get this information out is actually my sister and I did not start as OTs. We started in finance. I was a commodities trader on Wall Street and raised as an accountant. And I went to occupational therapy school to heal myself because as a young person, I had some signs of anxiety. And I put that in quotes because I was doing well. I was very smart. I was able to perform. I had my friends. I grew up in a Hungarian background. So I figured all my nervousness was cultural and not something physiological. And what I discovered as I was studying business and finance and doing the work is in high school, I realized that OT was my connection to possibly healing myself. And that's how we started down that road. And my sister who was in accounting, but always loved science, you can you can tell your story just to kind of quickly explain how we came to parents and newborns. Go ahead. So I actually went the route of not going into OT because I thought who needed another OT? Everyone was going into it. <laughs> so I went the route of accounting, but I've always loved the sciences and the body and the brain connection always fascinated me. So I made a switch when I was done. I remember I interviewed for a big six firm. I got a job and I'm like, I'm really not so connected to this. So I went back to school and I became an OT and I worked from my way old. The oldest patient I had was 99 and I worked my way down to Pease. And I was always fascinated by how plastic the brain is. And when I was doing early intervention, which I started with, and I did that for many, many years, for me, working with babies as well as their moms and just not so much even the work I'm doing, but being able to explain to a parent why something is so important, because I think we focus a lot on what 
kids need to do, what mothers need to do, but not the why and how do we get there and the little nuances of things that help our children get to where they are that are so important that that's, I think, what you know drives Friday and myself to do what we do. And if we can like educate people on like what to do before a pregnancy or like what to do when they're pregnant or during the birth process, little things that you do have such a profound impact on a baby that the more we know, the the better off our children are. So I'm just excited to be able to like spread the word and educate. And I have to just add in, I was a service coordinator for early intervention back before back before my nursing career. Yep. When I lived in Brooklyn, the sad thing I found was that their baby had to have some deficit in order to qualify for services. And I wish everybody can just get like at least a one-off consult, which I know the evaluation is, but even maybe several for everybody so that we can even preempt any delays or, or any other subtle issues that necessarily won't necessarily qualify as a deficit. So I want to talk on that point, and I appreciate you bringing it up, because when we started about 24 years ago, that was mandated for every single preemie. So when a preemie was born, they got 10 sessions of occupational therapy and 10 sessions of speech pathology. It was completely part of the discharge papers for a new mother. That got removed, the services got decreased, and that is really the hardest thing for us is that we have to wait until we see that deficit. And what's interesting and fascinating is that as OTs and anyone who's working in the field, we always have to show what the function is, right? The kids who are getting therapy are only the ones who are having a hard time talking, the only ones who are having a hard time walking significantly past the point. But how about those who are walking or talking but having a hard time with their quality of how they're moving? And people in the in the world does not recognize that it's really the qualities of movements that are the hallmark for developmental issues down the road. And that's and that really starts right from birth. Like there are things to do with a newborn to get on that track way before a parent even knows about early intervention, service coordinators, therapists. People don't wouldn't need us if we can get that prevention in place right off the bat. I also just wanted to add that besides the physical piece, you know, what about the kids who don't get qualified for services, but they have issues with their regulation and social emotional development. And that is something that we don't always look at when we're looking at our really young babies. We think, oh, they're not rolling, they're not eating well, but social emotional development and the ability to manage our emotions starts from day one by so many pieces that many kids get lost in the system until there is an issue. And if we can like get everyone to know why it's so important and how to do it, wow, we can impact so all babies actually, <laughs> not just the ones that need services. Yeah, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty, but imagine, for example, we know from science and research that if someone is on bed rest, that child has a higher chance of having issues with anxiety and integration issues because of that vestibular system. So you mean if a pregnant mom is on bed rest? Yes. Wow. They're really eliminating recommendations for bed rest, uh, you know, for maternal reasons. But wow, that's very cool. It's very rare that a doctor will will recommend actual bed rest. It's falling out of the evidence, the current evidence that we have as to the risks and benefits. But that is very interesting to hear. And imagine if there is for some reason that a parent did need to be on, a mother did need to be on better, maybe they broke their leg. Maybe they're not moving as much as they normally would, even if it's not based on the criteria. Imagine 
if the nurse right at delivery could show the mother movements that will help that baby reset that system. Or maybe there are certain reflexes that were not present at birth. And instead of the doctor just putting out that APGAR score, right away we can get a culture where it's knowledge that the parent has, this is what's going on with the reflexes and here's the deal. Do these couple of movements and you'll help your baby to elicit or integrate whatever should have been elicited or integrate at the time of birth. How powerful because these reflexes that aren't integrated impact anxiety, mental health challenges, learning issues, all these different components. I think it's important just for anyone who's listening and doesn't know what we're talking about with the reflexes that when we we're talking about those baby reflexes that our kids are born with, And many people don't know that those reflexes happen in utero. They are developed then and the baby gets to practice them through a mom's movement every time a baby moves their head. When you feel that kick, it's actually a reflex that's being activated so the mom feels the baby's kick. And it's the reflexes that are a part of the actual birth process. So for a baby who maybe isn't, you know, things are not going as they should, they're not descending properly, it's taking very long. Sometimes it could be indicative of the reflexes not being used. So you wanna make sure that when that baby is born, if they had an issue, that we try to give them the exercises or experience for that baby so that they're using what they need that they didn't have maybe during the delivery. Yeah, on a practical side, I just wanna share stories about my birth just briefly. Um, This is not even the birth story, Hani, that we had wanted to share with you initially, but when my son was born, he, I ended up with a fever after having an epidural called an epidural fever. And apparently you can correct me if I'm wrong. It's not so common, right? Like epidural fevers. It is definitely a known side effect of epidurals and something we look out for. And there's actually physiology behind why I'm not going to go into it because it's super complicated. Um, The thing with a fever also is that they can't always rule out that there's an infection as well. So sometimes it's hard to differentiate. Is it a fever from an epidural or is it a fever because there's a um, we call it chorioamnionitis, where there's an infection of the lining of the uterus that's encasing the baby. And so a lot of times they'll treat with antibiotics regardless. And, um, you know, because we don't want to risk the baby having any sepsis or the mother having sepsis. Okay. So listen, I'm glad you're telling me this because I did not know that, you know, years ago. And I think that would have like really shocked me, but I knew I was not well. I was not anti, you know, um, epidurals at the time. It's, it's still not my case. If you need an epidural, that's fine. That's really our approach. Whatever is best for mommy is our approach in, in when it comes to birthing. But I will tell you that um, the delivery was very traumatic. There were three hours of pushing. It was very, very frightening. And when my son was born, I he was nine six. He was tremendous. He was a huge baby. He was a first timer. And when that happened, right away, I saw that there were reflexes that were not in play. So as a professional, I knew what to do. But my doctor and my pediatrician thought that I was like, you know, off the wall. He's like, why are you worrying about this? He's big. He's strong. And I realized that the psychology of what medicine sometimes looks at is really just medical life. Are they growing? Are they pooping? Are they sleeping? Are they hitting those developmental milestones? But I realized that because of the birth that I had with my son, I would need to do certain things to help him in that first year of life. And it was only because of my knowledge. When it came to that third birth, which we do want to share with you the magic of the story where there was no intervention and I woke up in my sleep And I gave birth within minutes with no warning, having known that her cord was wrapped around twice. And again, that's a big story to say, but it was amazing that as I was on all fours and my sister was there present, 
actually, right? So we're going to get to that story. We're going to get to that story at some point. I was able to watch, though, my daughter on her own go through those reflexes and we watched it. Even though we lecture on this, we give courses, we give preemptive like baby on track courses and connecting the dots course and all these different things on reflexes. We were able to see the magic of just allowing nature to take its course and to recognize the power that is down the road. Now imagine if there is that issue of a traumatic birth, everyone, not, not scaring parents, not making them say, oh, there's gonna be trouble or a problem, Making it as part as part and parcel, the same way you talk about feeding and the same way we talk about sleeping and we talk about the dangers of shaken baby syndrome where we talk about car seats, teaching them physiological movements that will help because of the birth trauma or that situation. I just, I just from my heart, I wanted to share that that's the message that we wish OBGYNs would know, we wish that everyone in the hospital system would recognize is just as important as how big the baby was and whether it was a C-section or a vaginal delivery, it should be one of the check marks. How are the reflexes? How are they doing? And did we teach them what to look out for? Such simple stuff that can prevent such bigger issues later on. That's really fascinating to me because we do. I'm a, a labor and delivery nurse in a hospital. We focus on, like you said, the APGARS, is the baby feeding well, is the baby peeing and pooping? But it's very profound to think about the fact that the actual birth can affect a baby as well, not just a mother, uh, you know, traumatic births. And when I say traumatic, I don't necessarily only mean psychologically. I also mean physically traumatic births for whatever reason, vacuum forceps, difficult uh, pushing C-section. It's very interesting and insightful to think that those can affect the baby's development. And I want to ask you, because I've heard this said once before on a podcast by an OT that there are certain benefits of a vaginal birth for a baby over a C-section from an OT perspective. What ends up happening is when you when it, things go the way that they should, you're actually allowing the baby to use these reflexes. Number one, there are several that are used to the birthing process to allow the baby to come down the birth canal, to do that corkscrew effect, to turn their head. The cardinal movements, are you talking about the cardinal yes, movements? Yes, yeah. all those movements. And it actually also helps prime the baby's um, respiratory system to work. When we have that baby and we're waiting for that first cry, that's when they take that intake of breath. That is actually a reflex as well that is being engaged to allow the baby to cry, which is why when a baby unfortunately doesn't cry, what do we do? We grab that baby and we give it a little bit of a tap to activate that reflex to startle that baby so that it comes into play. So if you think about it, and I'm always fascinated by development and just the birthing process, there's so much that goes on to allow that baby. It's almost like you're turning the switch on in my mind and you're allowing all those circuits to start working. And that's not to say, by the way, that a mom who has to have a C-section is going to have a baby who's going to have an issue. I want to put that out there. There are babies can have C's, you know, you can have a C-section and your baby's going to be perfectly fine. I think it's just something to keep in mind so that if you did have a C-section, you may want to make sure that certain reflexes are being used. Or for me, you know, especially as therapists working with parents, we always ask when we have a kid who maybe has an issue about the birthing process, was it something that was not elected and it was something that you had to do in, a, in an emergency because something's not happening? I think it just gives you a little bit of a sign, okay, 
there may have been a little bit of an issue with this. Does that mean that baby's going to have problems? No, not necessarily. And I think that that's something we always have to keep in mind, just because you had to have something, a vacuum delivery, a force of delivery. Many times that is tried before we go into the C-section. And then the C-section is just an, it's something you must do. And that I think is just important to keep in mind because physiologically those parts of that birth and the delivery are important for that baby's priming their system. Going back to when you said about vaginal birth helping a baby's lungs expand, the physiology behind that is that during labor, a baby actually releases catecholamines, which is the stress hormone, which in turn helps open up that baby's lungs, among other things, helps stabilize baby's blood sugars, helps babies uh, distribute the oxygen through their circulatory system better. And a baby who was not in labor and actually we see this also a baby who had a C-section scheduled versus being in labor first contributes to that catecholamine release and that opening of the lungs. And yeah, we'll see a perfectly healthy baby of a mom come in for a scheduled C-section. And I tell this to parents ahead of time as part of my pre-op education so that they're not massively anxious, but that baby is at higher likelihood of needing CPAP, which is just a mask that will help them expand their lungs better when they breathe. So they may be breathing well on their own, but their lungs are not expanding as much um, due to not having that catecholamine release. And I let parents know, and usually they become fine. It, you know, there's a little bit of a transition period, and I'm sure you'll speak more to that. And also just to speak to, not to scare people, this is more of a precautionary thing that we look out for in in terms of just because you have a C-section doesn't mean your baby's going to have neurodevelopmental delays. Just because you have a C-section doesn't mean your baby's going to have breathing problems. Your baby may have a higher risk of needing the help. And that's what we look out for when we're assessing a baby. And to speak to what you said, you will ask a parent for their the birth history of this baby in order to be able to look out for what you think the baby might be at risk of having as problems. I'm so appreciative that you brought that up because again, it's never a cause and effect situation. There's never a causal relation. There's a correlational component there. And that's a key, key point. And, and I'm so appreciative that you brought it up because parents sometimes will read that, oh, if my baby didn't crawl, they're going to have reading issues. Not true. And if my baby had a C-section, they're going to have issues with anxiety or with that moral reflex. Not true. It doesn't mean that it's a cause. It's always based on a full profile of all the components. How is their sensory system? How are those reflexes? How's the neurochemical release? What is going on rhetorically in their brain? That's the key component. And let's be frank and honest that we all have stuff and that's okay. And sometimes, and we're living in a world of so much information and so much knowledge, the fear factor comes into play sometimes, especially in moms, especially first time moms or new moms, that we kind of forget the fact that it's okay to just recognize that the central nervous system does take time to develop and everything might be fine. It doesn't have to be in the same spectrum. When you were talking, I was just thinking about how the stress of birth for the baby is a good stress because we want those neurochemicals to come out and we want them to go through the difficulty. And you see me in codes here in terms of like getting it's it's hard for a baby to get down that birth canal. It really has to do a lot of stuff. And when you mentioned how some people start with the, the baby starts with the delivery and it's difficult and then they need a C-section, even that little prep work, that journey that they're on, primes them for being able to do better physiologically. So yeah, I think that a lot, we don't stress that as much 
or mention that as much when we talk sometimes to parents as they're talk about what's going to happen, what's going to happen afterwards, but not that process. And I think it's important for mothers to know that. I remember we had a client who um, kept saying that her baby was not kicking during um, her pregnancy very often. And she had learned that there's a reflex called the ATNR that gets elicited. That's actually the kicking reflex. So when your baby's kicking, it's them using their head and movement in the womb and they're kicking their arms and legs. So she was just panicking about that. And only because of the knowledge that she had with her older child who had been coming to us for reading issues that was impacted by not having that reflex strongly in play at birth. So after she gave birth, she came over and she was panicking. She was like, she came with her baby. She had her appointment and she was like, there's no ATNR. Like my kid's doomed and all that. And my sister and I, we had to calm her and say, no, just if you're lacking one reflex, it does not mean that you're doomed or anything like that. This, the culture has to shift where we're not worried. Or if we read something online, or if we hear something from doctors, doctors were very in their opinions tremendously. I'm sure, honey, you have that all the time working in a hospital and working with different um, professionals. We hear it from, you know, having evaluated so many different children from around the world, the country for sure. There are different philosophies, East Coast, West Coast, Everyone has their own, um, how do I put this, approach, the way that they look at things, and it's never one direction or one fits all. One of the things we always tell parents, trust your gut, because if you feel like it's off, then maybe there was something, and knowledge is power, but you don't want to get stuck in the fear factor of too much information. So I'm just driving that point home a little bit. Friends, if you wear wigs, then you need to hear this. I found a hat fall called the Hustle Wig, which was created for busy moms, the long days at work, and everything in between. They make looking good and wearing a wig simple. Their hat fall wigs are lined with a breathable jersey fabric, no combs, no clips, and it is literally the most comfortable wig that I have ever worn. Their wigs are some of the most affordable wigs that you can get. They're made from 100% human hair. Now get this, they offer free shipping and exchanges if you order online, as well as no restocking fee if returned. Plus, right now they have a special promotion going on called the Duo Try-On. Order any two wigs to try on in the comfort of your own home while only putting down a deposit for one. Use code TRYON at checkout. They also have lots of customizable options. Go to thehustlewig.com, that's T-H-E-H-U-S-T-L-E-W-I-G, Com. You can also check out their Instagram, The Hustle Wig. And as usual, all of this info will be in my show notes. When we're talking about, let's say, you know, development or having that kind of information out there, one of the things that really, um, I guess we were surprised by is that there's a lack of understanding from the medical side about how important the impact of delivery is on the long run. And, you know, like you said, Connie, they talk about nutrition and they talk about feeding and sleeping, but we're never talking about the issues of quality of life for these kids until there has to be a prescription in play for OT or for psychologists or for social skills group. And I think that if they would understand that during those first years of life, those first two years, particularly three years in life, these components of how they're moving are impacting the brain maps for language, for social emotional skills, how they're crawling, how they're getting into sitting. You know, the pediatricians are just asking, are they sitting? Are they crawling? But there are so many nuances in the brain maps of development that impact language and other components 
based on how they get to those points. I just wanted to add that I think it's also, as you were talking, you know, we speak about like from birth is a baby eating, is a baby, you know, making things like tongue tie or a child not having a good connection right after delivery, like feeding right away, whether it's nursing or you're doing a bottle feeding and they're struggling. We focus a lot of times on what that means in terms of eating, but the connections that are being made or the fact that that child is learning how to regulate their nervous system through positive associations and positive experiences sometimes do not happen. And we may not, parents may not realize that that is the foundation and the building blocks for that child to be able to emotionally regulate themselves. So sometimes certain things get overlooked or sometimes we're addressing it, but it's a struggle between the mother or I'm even thinking of if we take it a step further, a mom who's maybe going through postpartum depression and isn't connecting as well with their child. So they're not doing certain things and it's understandable because they're just not in that emotional place. So when we focus on just the the problem and not the information and the connection, even having others to come in, like a child who's not going to be feeding well may have a poor oral motor reflex, or they may not have a good palmar reflex. There are so many things that we can do to help that mother and that baby to make those connections for that foundation, that emotional piece to be in place so that they're developing social emotionally, because it's not just about the physical. We usually only get to the social emotional piece when we're really talking about a child who is behavioral, not transitioning there. And because a child is not born behavioral, they are born just wanting to be as you know comfortable in their own skin as possible. And those are important pieces that I think are not stressed also as much. I'm listening to you and I'm just thinking about how, you know, you and I as adults, right? We have a piece of steak. We have some chocolate, whatever it is. That's your vice. We feel that yumminess. We feel that comfort. We feel okay. And we're missing the point that when a baby is nursing or when a baby is getting food, there's that connection of feeling comfortable from the association with food. Our picky eaters and our folks who are sometimes having issues with regulating how much they want to eat, they are overeaters, they're undereaters, they don't know they don't know what hunger means. We talk about a lot of eating um, disorders that are popping up. Sometimes it stems from those initial components of those first months of life of how that connection was built. When a baby is is satiated and the mother is holding the baby and there's that comfort and it's a comfortable experience, they're feeling the energy and the hormones from that mother and it's feeding into their own development and they understand what it means to be satisfied. If they don't have that, then there's so much more of a struggle for them to capture those emotional contexts of what it means to be happy. I know that with my third um, child with that birth that happened spontaneously, she utilizes those reflexes on her own to climb up and latch on. I, I mean, I had read about it in the books, but like it happened. It, it really does happen. She knew instinctively we don't have to teach our children how to become satisfied. And if we do, and that's something, a reminder for us to kind of recognize it's not just about the ounces that are being fed, but what does it mean psychologically and emotionally for that baby down the road? And I think that I wish that that would be mentioned to the pediatricians and to the medical professionals who are so focused on all the other, which again, very important, medical life is number one. Before we worry about anything about quality of life, just living is number one, the priority. I think it would be amazing if we could have that message brought out even more so. Anyway, now I'm getting emotional because I, I just, I feel it because I've had three kids and each one was a unique birth and I'm just, you know, as many 
children as I've evaluated, having gone through it, I know what the response was on the other end. It was always about, are they eating? Are they sleeping? And and I get it. We live in a world with insurance and time and they want to get the mothers out. And there's not so much of that energy, but I think that the nurses have a, such a critical I, I can tell you I'm so appreciative of the nurses I had because I was in a hospital that really, really cared um, very much. I mean, I think all nurses try their best, but I had phenomenal ones. And they, they, with my first, who I had issues with, I'll never forget, a nurse sat with me for two hours. They don't do that. There's no time to sit for two hours before the lactation consultant can come. And she, in the middle of the night, it was by the NICU, and she was trying to help me to get nursing going. And it was, I was crying. I was emotional. And she was sitting with me, and she got me to a point where he lashed. And that's what I needed just to feel that comfort. And I'll never forget her. Like, you know, she was just an amazing person. There's such a key role in what's going on in our first contact with medical professionals on our side as parents, as well as for our kids who are going to live a full life, way more than the 48 hours that we're in hospitals. I don't know, are they in hospitals nowadays, 48 hours, or are they kicking them out earlier? I don't know. I hope it's still 48. I like to tell my pa my patients vaginal delivery is two midnights. C-section is three midnights. Sometimes they'll leave earlier if they want to. The hospital doesn't make its environment very uh, wanting, very hospitable for people to actually want to stay. Uh, I mean, we do educate a lot. So parents find they, they like the lactation support. And again, it varies so much from hospital to hospital. Like you said, you know, you were in a hospital that you felt like was very supportive. Um, there's a, a different culture in every single hospital, there's a different flavor in every single hospital. And it depends on so many things, resources and staff and et cetera. Um, so you're going to get varying degrees of help in every single hospital. And that's why it's also good to actually interview people around you, like friends and whatever, because they'll be able to tell you if you're hearing from several people that this hospital is great, they felt like they got so much support, you might want to consider that. Um, but I have to also speak back to what you were talking about, that crawling reflex that babies have. Um, and unfortunately, so many people working in the hospital rarely see true undisturbed physiological births. And this is this happens primarily in like truly undisturbed physiological births with really no interventions. Um, but sometimes when I'll put the baby down on their tummy, they'll kind of like raise their head and pull off of their hands. And parents are amazed to see that. And I love that walking reflex. I love showing parents. I'm like, your kid's not going to walk for another little while, but here they're going to walk right now. And they actually see their baby, you know, putting one foot down and raising the other foot and then walking like while I'm holding them. And parents are fascinated. So if I have time, I love just, you know, showing them that. So I, I love that you're bringing that up that because I think it's something that we do need to point out to parents. And it's so nice to see. And I think it's true that we don't always see that. In fact, my sister and I, I think it was by your second delivery. And the doctor said this, that sometimes they will support the head or do certain things in the delivery, not necessarily to hasten the delivery, but just to make sure that the delivery goes in the way that they may want it to go to ensure safety and security for both baby and mom. Yet sometimes when you give too much support and you're actually holding that head, you don't allow the baby to have the movement patterns that they need. And depending on how the delivery goes, when you when we talk about that crawling, uh, going up a baby, being able to do that, if a baby is under a lot of stress or if the mom is under a lot of stress or if there is sometimes, you know, other, like even sometimes an epidural, it could affect you seeing certain things like that. So the more natural that we can allow a, a delivery to be, or as you said, physiologically not or physically not to manipulate as much, 
we see more from what a baby can do naturally, which is so important because the more you practice and they utilize these reflexes that, like you said, the walking one goes away and disappears, but it's important for them to have that in the beginning. They need to have that. I just want to share that, you know, we're going to hopefully Connie's talk another time about the actual birth story that I experienced with my third, which was magical in this way because it was so natural. And there was there was a religious component. There was a spiritual component. There was it, it, my, my third was really born on her own. No one interfered at all. Even afterwards, we were so shocked. We, it was she was born in silence. It was it was just an, it was a surreal kind of birth. It's so, so important though, to recognize that when we're experiencing birth in and of itself, if we were to really understand all those components that were happening, it's just awesome. And I know it seems so apparent, but if we really understood what's going on for nine months in utero, what's happening in that pivotal, pivotal mode, there's a reason why they say that Hashem holds the keys and is right there and present when we give birth, because no matter how much knowledge you have as an OT, a nurse or a doctor, there is so much happening in simultaneously in that moment from the hormones being released, from the reflexes that are occurring, from the act of gravity, from the position of a head with my second that my sister is mentioning, she was born sunny side up. So there was a danger over there. We did have to get her out at that moment. There are so many components at play that it truly just reinforces the gratitude we have to have for just being able to have a healthy birth. So I just want to share if anyone's listening to all this and they're saying, oh, wow, you know, Hani's talking about the stepping reflex and Bright is talking about how her baby climbed up. The fact that your baby is alive in and of itself, that is the power and the magic. These reflexes, if they're missing, it's not the end of the world. I just want to drive that home because sometimes when we think about it, we forget that there really is a surreal, miraculous component to birthing. And there's a powerful situation for us as women, but it truly, truly is a gift and a miss. The more we know, the more we see how much we don't know. Honestly, that's right. And that's how every person working in the birth world will tell you that, you know, from the highest risk, most skilled expert doctors, you know, down to all of us little earthlings here, little, <laughs> but everybody will tell you that the more we know, the more we see just how little we know about birth. And, and I also just want to build on like, if even if you hear something and you're like, oh, my delivery didn't go that way. My baby didn't do that. I wonder if there's an issue. I feel that parents also have to know that knowing the information and things, there's always the hope of making changes and there's always the hope of connecting. And I think the earlier you know things, so when you, you know, people sometimes, oh, my delivery didn't, I didn't get to do this or my baby didn't do that. Okay, but the delivery went well, it's a healthy baby. And if there's anything that comes up, if you have the knowledge, you can always connect. You can always do things to help your baby. It's more when we don't share, it's more than we don't know and we don't process also. You know, not everything that you know applies to you or has to apply to you. It's more that you have these little grains of knowledge, these tidbits that will help you with your baby and yourself so that you can do what you need to do to help your baby develop to where they need to be. Do you have any tidbits um, to enlighten parents on things that they can do either, like you said, before pregnancy, during pregnancy, after their baby's born? So we actually have a full course that we haven't done in a long time. It's called Baby on Track. 
And it goes through those kind of components of sensory integration, reflex integration, and practical things that parents can do. I would love to share some of the things that we have as a general rule for all parents, but the course is nice because it goes through the different scenarios, whether it's a vaginal delivery, a C-section. We can, we can talk about this, honey, for like days. So just to tell you a couple of things that we feel over the years are things that parents don't recognize is really, really important. Um, I will say that if you're going to be nursing, you wanna make sure, or bottle feeding, to always feed the child in both ways, meaning both sides of the breast. If you're using one hold, don't switch the hold for the other um, breast in um in the same feeding you want to try and get the same kind of hold in both of them because we're impacting the eye development and their visual development at that point but i was going to take it back to like pregnancy i mean we say this we say this to our parent our our new you know our expecting moms but you want to make sure that you're also moving and you're taking care of having different movement patterns and you're taking care of your emotional health. It's very important. I know we talk about it, but the stress response that we go through, which we all live every single day, whether you're expecting or not, is ingrained within us. And you know, sometimes we may even have more of a predisposition for being under stress. Just know that it's important to take those breaks, be, you know, do movement, because movement also changes neurochemically what's going on within yourself physiologically, which also affects your baby. So just to keep moving and trying to put yourself in a you know, in a happy place and being in a good, positive mindset. And also once your baby is born, whether you have a natural delivery or a C-section, to try to give your baby movements that we naturally, by the way, do when we rock our baby, when we walk with our baby, when we position our baby, to make sure that we give them as many movements as possible, even though they don't have the muscle tone to do things on their own, giving them the freedom of movement by putting them on a flat surface or tummy time right away. You know, you diaper your baby, you're allowed to put your baby on their stomach for even 15 seconds at every single diaper change begins to help them develop those systems that are already there, but they start to move and calibrate. And we should focus on that a little bit more as well. And also don't rush the movements. There's no, I know that the CDC has these guidelines and everyone has to, and you work as a coordinator, so you know that we're going by those guidelines. But if your child is not sitting yet, putting them in sitting actually does more harm than allowing them to struggle through going from on their backs or their bellies and getting to the seated position. Because when they're doing that, there are small movements that are actually developing their internal vestibular system that has a direct relationship to their emotional development. And people do not recognize that we just want to get that cute picture of the child sitting on the floor, but really allow them. And if they're, they're delayed walking, I live in a neighborhood where I go to the park and the parents are like, yes, my child was walking by nine months, by 10 months, and they're bragging about it. And my heart is falling because I'm thinking, I see your child. Your child should have been crawling probably a little bit longer because they're having all these fears now or they're having all these issues. Don't push your child to do the, the milestones earlier than they need to. There's a reason why there, why there are averages. Like they were talking about, you know, yes, I was, and I see them in the park that they're trying to get the nine month old to walk when the kid doesn't have to walk. It's okay to take their time. When we say they'll grow out of it or they'll grow into it, we're actually talking about the central nervous system. It takes time for that nervous system to develop and that's okay. Let's not rush it, where's the race? We're all gonna be walking, thank God. I think the rushing is also that parents should know that for every little movement that a child does, it also affects them social emotionally. So when you're 
your movement is directly tied to your social emotional development. So if you're moving freely and you're moving your head, then you, which because of the fact, I'll just put out there little signs, it is connected to where it happens in the part of the brain. Our social emotional development runs according to a certain path where our physical development also goes in that frontal part of our brain. So when your baby is, let's say, crying a little bit and we are like, oh, no, no, I want to pick that baby up. Allow your baby to cry for those couple of minutes because that crying is also developing their social emotional health. A little bit of crying is a lifetime of development for that child. So I think it's it's all these little things that you can do are going to help your baby's overall development as they go along. I really like that. From now on, I'm going to tell my parents that get frantic when their baby cries, you know, the second they make a little squeak. I, I, I like that. I'm going to be able to reassure them and let them know, actually, the crying helps develop their social emotional. And it's so true. That's that, it's that mind-body connection. Even for myself, like I do yoga and it releases a lot of emotions in me. Um, I, I noticed that throughout the years of practicing yoga and it really was like, Wow. So yoga in its essence are reflex movements. I don't know if you know this or are aware of it, but when you do yoga, you're doing reflex integration work on yourself. When you cry, we're allowing ourselves to release those systems. And, you know, therapists, psychologists who we work with, who are finally, when they hit plateau, sometimes they'll, they'll refer to us because they recognize now these connections. We, we got accredited by the national organizations and the boards of social work and mental health professionals to teach this because we started proving the correlations. And that's important because if let's say someone's, we have adults who we consult with or in our weekly talks, when they speak about the traumas that they're experiencing and we talk about physiological roots and they attempt it. And again, it's unique for every single person. So for you, honey, yoga is good, but for another person, it does nothing. There's a reason for that. When you move in certain ways, your body will respond in those parts of the brain that are directly connected to your past traumas, your emotional schemas, your actual blueprint of how you respond. And if culturally you were in a culture I don't want to name which kind of cultures, but they limited emotional expression or you were neglected or you were abused or you were not taken care of in the way in the way you needed to. That emotional context of release was not allowed. And that can actually create physical issues. So that mind body connection goes both ways. We can control our emotions by understanding our body and we can understand we can control our body by understanding our emotional context. It's a direct relationship. So yoga with back pain, a lot of people will use yoga sometimes if they're in back pain or having issues with stress that come out in their body. Like we've heard of dermatologists recommending yoga now, which is exciting to hear because they're recognizing that the immune response for rashes, eczema, all those autoimmune components might be coming from that physiological release of that lower brainstem. So there's a lot of research that's now backing this up. And that's what's exciting about getting on these podcast and being able to share this information because we don't put that connection together. We know it makes us feel good and we're crying, but we don't know that there's actually a reason behind it. And that's, that's empowering to know that we're not just doing it out of a random place, but it's coming from a source. I would want anyone who's listening, who's as a kid, who's going to have a baby to really enjoy the process of what that really, really means from the beginning until 
I guess your child is continuing to develop and to know that the more you know and the more you can take in doesn't necessarily mean every tidbit of information is going to relate to you, but there is so much that we can do to help ourselves and our children. Because when we really help ourselves, and we didn't even touch upon this, the connection, the regulation that we have, the regulation that we help our children facilitate, that's what's most important for our developing children to be healthy, both in their mind and in their body. And it starts from day one. So I would tell parents, don't worry so much and focus on being connected and present and allow development to happen as naturally as possible, because that's going to create and have a healthy child, an emotionally and a physically healthy child. The message that I think that I I always try and, and share with parents that we speak to or we have any way of getting through to is trust your instincts and your gut in the world of knowledge and again i'm really kind of driving this point home just remember that your child was born to you for a reason and the connection is both ways your child is there to help you grow as a person and to be able to listen to your own voice inside of yourself and your child needs you that's the that there's no other parent that's going to be able to take care and do what needs to be happening to that child if not for you so if you feel overwhelmed quiet yourself, quiet that noise, and just remember that you were born, you were given that gift and you should trust your gut. And I just want to end with the point of what you said about being present, because if that's the takeaway, it works on so many levels. And we didn't even talk about the co-regulation piece and all that point. But when you are present fully, even with stress, even with nerves, even with excitement, right? Some of our mothers are so excited about giving birth. They're on that high from there be extremely present and appreciate those moments. If you're grateful for it, it's all worth it. And I just wanna thank you, Hani, for allowing us to share this message with your community and for everything that you do by being present for all those moms out there. It's We're appreciative of that. We, we know the magic of what you do from the other side from years of doing this work and we really appreciate you too. Thank you. That's very sweet. It's a privilege. It really is. And um, if you can tell our audience one more time how they can reach you, what you offer, and I will put those links in the show notes. Our handle on Instagram and on Facebook is Hands On Approaches. We have every single week a live talk where we have a show where approximately 1,500 people come listening to live Q&As with my sister and myself. Feel free to join that. It's audio. So I'm usually cooking for Shabbos. My sister is home doing what she needs to do, but it's a beautiful community. We also have a membership called Transcend. It's only open twice a year, I believe, but it's a very, very powerful group. And we offer courses under handsonapproaches.com. You can find all the information for our programming under the Hope Foundation which is our nonprofit, as well as the courses for development. We have one coming up actually that's starting on May 23rd called Baby on Track. We haven't done it in two years and we're going to be posting that out then. And I think that's about it. We have a lot of stuff. We have a blog on screen, lots of things. You can look at our different websites. Thanks for tuning into the Happy Birthway Podcast. Head over to Yolwedit Academy on Instagram to continue the conversation. You'll find the link in the episode show notes, as well as links to any additional resources, products, and services mentioned here. If you love listening to this show, you can help it grow by sharing it with your friends and rating and reviewing it. To stay in the loop when new episodes are released, make sure to subscribe. Remember that your health needs are unique and require individualized medical advice. 
The podcast is not a replacement, and some of the information may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances. My mission is to educate you so that you can confidently collaborate with your healthcare team. I believe that a healthy mom and healthy baby are simply not enough. We also need a happy mom with an empowering birth experience. 